Es un asunto en el que la sociedad civil siempre ha jugado un papel fundamental. La sociedad civil. Civil society. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Welcome back to another edition of The Grassroots View, the podcast from the European Economic and Social Committee. We're focusing on the Green Deal, the EU's flagship policy for the transition towards a net zero carbon future, and specifically the Green Deal Industrial Plan. Industry accounts for a substantial share of environmental pollution in Europe. It's therefore at the heart of discussions about the Green Deal transition. How can energy-hungry sectors of industry decarbonize effectively? How will Europe remain competitive and attract investment? What are the implications for workers and social policy? Joining me for this episode are Emanuele Bonini, a journalist for EU News and La Stampa, Sandra Patti, chair of the Internal Market Section at the EESC, and David Kleiman, a visiting fellow at the think tank Bruegel. First, David, to you. It's been said that the Green Deal Industrial Plan is a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, in America. So what is the IRA? So the Inflation Reduction Act um, really uh, did include a number of uh, provisions for for subsidies, for tax credits in the area of uh, production of clean tech as well as investment, uh, which would draw investments towards the United States. Uh, the United States and the European Union are competitors uh, in the manufacturing space. So there, um, you know, with um, initially a bit of panic, we now see sort of clear-headed response coming together on that is proposed by the European Commission uh, that has several elements Before we go to those elements, just give us an idea of the relationship between this kind of intervention and the availability of the raw materials to power the green transition. What the IRA does really is to uh, generate this demand, you know, the production subsidies and the investment subsidies generate this uh, strong demand for those critical raw materials. Critical raw materials are uh, relatively scarce in the world or let's, let's put it differently, very concentrated in certain areas of the world. And that uh, generates a, a competition between different parts of the world that seek to generate secure supply chains for critical raw materials. And the question is, where is the value uh, really added along the supply chain? And so how has Europe responded to this challenge from the United States? The European Union has put in place various responses. Uh, the European Commission has proposed the Critical Raw Materials Act and has come forward with a temporary crisis and transition framework, Section 2.8, which allows for OPEX subsidies, operational expenditures. Those are production subsidies. They are generally seen as trade distortive. Then we have the Net Zero Industrial Act, which does one thing importantly, that uh, is is the fast tracking of permitting for mining and manufacturing in order to make sure that those critical raw materials are not uh, only sourced from China. We uh, are aiming now to have a certain minimum percentage supplied by other countries. There seems to be a nervousness among policymakers about China and more generally losing ground to our major competitors. Is that a factor in Europe's response, do you think? We are seeing uh, on behalf of the European Commission an attempt to pronounce 
protectionist rhetoric to reassure workers domestically of of the European Union's effort um, uh, to um, have something like a made in Europe strategy that you know reassures domestic constituencies that uh, Europe is not deindustrializing and the production targets uh, that are set in the net zero industrial act are really catering to those constituencies. This is uh, not necessarily aligned with the European DNA in terms of market openness, in terms of uh, free trade, and really, you know, is a little bit, uh, you know, a result of the contagion of US protectionism. Well, of course, there are some political forces in Europe that would welcome a more protectionist rhetoric from the Commission. The problem here is, is perhaps that the rhetoric doesn't necessarily align with the tools that are being put forward, like in the net zero industrial act, are not linked to production targets such as 40% in various clean tech sectors. But um, of course, uh, the sort of expected backlash against the green transition, and uh, and we're now uh, in the middle of the backlash, really, it does generate that anxiety whether the Commission can uphold the credibility of achieving those, say, production targets in the Net Zero Industrial Act, uh, given the fact that uh, the instruments are not aligned with that. And it would really be a pity if uh, if we did lose sort of the open market paradigm and free trade paradigm, given the fact that uh, our trade policy and our market openness is an asset in relations with third countries and, uh, and the peace and prosperity that it creates. David Kleiman from Bruegel, thanks for coming on The Grassroots View. Now to Sandra Patti, Chair of the Internal Markets Section at the European Economic and Social Committee. Sandra, tell us first the work the committee's been doing to scrutinise the Green Deal Industrial Plan. We have been doing a number of uh, opinions um, and, and hearings on these subjects, so on competitiveness, on the single market, and uh, we are trying to provide insight with input from the ground, since our members have a very um, grassroots um, and day-to-day knowledge and view of how these strategies, uh, decisions, etc. actually translate uh, into their daily work for running a business, for being um, a worker. So we really get uh, very specific, very concrete views and feedback on how Europe, EU legislation actually looks like on the ground. Well, we like to hear about grassroots inputs here on the Grassroots View, but are the other institutions listening? On the ground, a certain company knows mostly its own environment. It uh, ideally knows its customer base, um, and it also uh, more or less knows its uh, value uh, and supply chain. So this is what they are being focusing on. Um, They also need to make sure that whatever they do is in the end generating enough profit to actually survive, pay the workers, pay the bills. So this is what their focus is on. So it's a very different one to um, the one from the EU. And uh, the EU should take this into consideration that when setting up a strategy, um, you you cannot um, make it too drastic. You cannot make ask too much uh, from a company all at once. And is that a danger of this Green Deal industrial plan, do you think? As long as the general direction of travel is clear um, and we don't do a zigzag and and the reverse, um, you know, every three to five years, 
then companies can also plan ahead uh, with their own development, trying to understand the developments around them, but also the larger ones and then try and adapt. So um, from, from a new point of view, it's very much, I think, about um, the general framework. Um, and from a company point of view, it's very much um, trying to really make the necessary changes on the ground, understanding um, the new economic or societal uh, demands and developments and um, adjusting to this in the way they act. Now, David just a moment ago was talking about the policy approach to boosting Europe's long-term industrial future in the context of the transition. What other strategic levers does Europe have available to pull? We can try and be what we've always been, very innovative. So this is definitely a route one can go down in Europe to um, really try and set the right framework conditions, really try to work jointly together on innovation um, on, on projects, on developing new products and finding substitutes um, for things that uh, we potentially in the future will not have um, easy access to. And then the other bit um, to this, of course, is also skills and talent. And this is what we can develop as a resource. We can develop um, talent and we can develop skills and we can develop knowledge. And that hopefully then translates into innovation and into new products that make us less dependable on those that we don't have access to. One suggestion that you've considered as a committee is the idea of a European sovereignty fund to compete with similar funds operated by sovereign states around the world to invest for the long term. Tell us your perspective on that. I think the European sovereignty fund has been uh, an idea um, or maybe a reaction um, to what was happening in the US last summer, namely the um, Inflation Reduction Act. So um, seeing this, seeing how the US is um, offering a lot of um, financial resources uh, to their own um, economic actors, um, has of course led to demands for the EU to do something similar. Unfortunately, the EU itself also doesn't have much money. Um, they don't really have their own resources. They have provided a huge pot um, with the recovery money, with the Repower EU um, funds. So, so there's a possibility for member states to access that. First, uh, these available funds should be used before we are calling for another sovereignty fund which would have to be financed by debt. And that would not be a very sort of uh, future-proof concept uh, to begin with. Sandra Party, EESC member and Internal Markets Section Chair, thanks for your views. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Now I want to bring in Emanuele Bonini, a Brussels-based journalist for EU News and La Stampa. Emanuele, earlier David spoke about a backlash against the Green Deal. Is that how you see things from your position? It was clear since the beginning that the Green Deal in somehow was a bet because of uh, the raw material scarcity in the European Union. The fact that, you know, you have to transform an entire industrial sector from one day to another. And of course, the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war with the energy crisis in somehow um, produced a side effect that anybody could predict, of course. So... Um, it's becoming more complicated, this European uh, Green Deal. 
But it's at the same time, the European Commission cannot say, sorry, uh, we made a mistake. They cannot rethink. And how do you see what David said about the challenge of the Inflation Reduction Act? What the European Commission is trying to do, of course, is on one hand, trying to dialogue with the United States, because, of course, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is something the European Commission cannot address by itself. And on the other hand, of course, there's China and uh, uh, this Ursula von der Leyen um, announcement on open an inquiry on the electric vehicles produced in China by China is something the European Commission can do, of course, because we already have seen it when it comes to solar panel and steel from China. We have to deal with the uh, US and China. The US side, according to me, is more manageable because the partner is traditionally more reliable. And of course, the United States is more closely aligned with European values. But we're in competition with the US too. So have we in Europe boxed ourselves into a corner with our approach to this challenge? I got the impression that at a certain point, the European Union will be pushed to make a, a choice, raw materials or values. What do we need the most? For our economy, there's no doubt that the European Union needs raw materials. But in the end, what you need is to avoid a new dependence, because with energy, you saw how Europe was dependent from Russia and Gazprom. Now here, the problem is China. So far, the European Union is too dependent from China for what it's needed in order to translate the Green Deal in practice. And I fear that at a certain point, the European Union will choose raw materials instead of political value, because the alternatives are so limited. Sandra was talking a moment ago about the idea of a European sovereignty fund. Do you see that as politically viable? The point is, how do you want to build this fund? And how much, in terms of resources, do you want to put in? So these are the two main questions you have to answer. You want public money, so in this case, you, you have to ask once again to member states to put money, because the European Commission has no money to put or do you want a new own resources? But as you know, the own resources um, reform is another process still ongoing. You know, in Europe, when it comes to money, you have different member states with different positions. Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, Austria, they always try to, to say no uh, to public expenditures. It would be better find, you know, in the um, existing multi-annual multi financial frameworks. And just finally, the European Commission president called in her State of the Union address for a new dialogue on labour and social policy. So how do you see the EESC's role in this broader debate? Is it still possible to shape the political landscape? I think the uh, great opportunity will be, of course, this future debate and uh, summit that Ursula von der Leyen announced uh, in order to discuss about uh, labor markets with all the social parties. I hope the institution will be there because Ursula von der Leyen gave her word that all these stakeholders, all the social partners will be involved in this we have also to bear in mind that the European elections getting closer and closer, then they will be have to transfer to the next European Commission. So, yes, the most important thing is to put pressure and, of course, engage with public hearings and try to bring your point of view to the European Commission. Emanuele Bonini, thanks for your contribution. And thanks to my other guests, EESC member Sandra Patti and Bruegel expert David Kleiman. 
As Emanuele was saying at the end there, these coming 12 months or so will be critical in shaping the long-term future of the Green Deal and its ambitions for the industrial sector. That's all for this edition. Join us again soon when our topic will be EU enlargement in the Western Balkans, where once again, we'll be looking at things from the grassroots view.